This is Macro Horizons, episode 252, the one where they talk about the outlook, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Ben Jeffrey and Vale Hartman to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of December 11th. As we prepare our forecast for 2024, recent experience suggests that forecasts should be rebranded as the departure point for future revisions. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. In the year ahead, the Treasury market will be focused on timing the first rate cuts of the cycle. We've now reached terminal, which is 533. And so the big question next year will be how long will the Fed be able to delay rate cuts before needing to begin the process of rate normalization? Our baseline assumption is that the Fed will be able to make it into the second half of the year without cutting rates. Embedded within this is a degree of stubbornness on the part of monetary policymakers that hasn't occurred in several cycles. Recall that Powell has been tasked with fighting decades-high levels of inflation, so it follows intuitively that the Fed would offer a decades-high degree of hawkishness during this particular stage of the cycle. As we put the finishing touches on our rate forecast for 2024, we'll highlight a couple data points of relevance. First, we expect that by the end of next year, the Fed will have begun cutting rates and that two-year yields will be celebrating the holidays in 2024 at roughly 3%. Moving further out the curve, we have a year-end forecast for 10-year yields at 350, which implies a positive slope for the 2s, 10s curve. From the current level of 2s, 10s at roughly negative 45 basis points, this implies a nearly 100 basis point re-steepening over the course of next year. Recall that the big macro trade for 2023 was widely anticipated to be the cyclical re-steepening of the curve, and while there were moments in which twos tens appeared to be on the path back to positive territory, what we've seen is that the combination of a resilient labor market and sticky inflation has led the Fed to err on the side of increasing rates more than expected and signaling that they have no intention of cutting rates for the foreseeable future. Now, clearly that is going to change at some point, presumably over the course of 2024, as the Fed seeks to transition from a very restrictive monetary policy stance to something slightly less restrictive. Now, for context, we're not anticipating a particularly hard economic landing that involves a spike of the unemployment rate to 6 or 7%, certainly not in the first half of next year, but rather a well-telegraphed change in monetary policy once we have confirmation that, in fact, price stability has been reestablished in the U.S. economy. 
The title of our 2024 outlook is Watch the Gray Rhino, Fear the Black Swan, and we think that that does a reasonable job of approximating the risks that by the time we get to the second half of 2024, we will have seen a much larger dislocation and repricing in risk assets than we're envisioning at this point. Now, clearly, if the Fed is successful in moderating inflation and reintroducing some balance into the labor market, then it can be a slow and gradual move in both monetary policy rates as well as the shape of the yield curve and nominal yields. If there is an external shock, either in the form of a significant stock market repricing lower or a credit event that has some contagion aspect, we could see that slow and gradual pace compress very quickly and those year-end targets achieved long before the calendar turn. Our U.S. rates outlook for 2024 isn't without risks, so we're going to do our top 10 countdown. Risk number 10. Regulation. And calling this risk simply regulation is intentionally ambiguous because there's a couple facets of the current regulatory environment that's worth considering given what it means for market function, the direction of yields, and the overall state of the market as the Fed does its best to keep rates high and continuing to remove liquidity from the system. The first dynamic we'll touch on here is the pressure that banks continue to face in terms of their ability to warehouse treasuries on their balance sheet and serve as intermediaries within the market simply given the fact that the treasury market is much, much, much bigger than it used to be, but yet some of the constraints that dealers need to deal with has meant that as a source of outright demand, but also as market makers, there are some headwinds as it relates to banks' participation in the treasury market, and that in turn runs the risk of triggering larger price swings and more volatility than would otherwise be the case. Now, we also know that the Treasury Department is going to be starting its buyback program in early 2024 and attempt to help improve liquidity in off-the-runs and increase trading in on-the-run space. Now, we don't have a high-conviction opinion on how this relates to the directionality of the outright level of yields, but in terms of trading behavior, another dynamic to consider in terms of the public sector's influence on trading in U.S. rates. And finally, one notion that we've had an increasing number of conversations about is the basis trade in treasuries and hedge funds significant short positions in futures held against off-the-run bonds, a trade that's become very popular this year and has stretched positioning, as one can see in the CFTC data, to extremes. So the rumblings about the potential for a mandatory haircut being implemented on hedge fund market participants and what that would mean for the viability of these basis trades or the potential for a lot of same-way positions needing to be closed very quickly also introduces the risk of some outsized volatility. Now, will this overwhelm the labor market and inflation monetary policy in terms of setting the level of 10-year yields? Probably not, but it is certainly something to consider. Number nine, foreign demand for treasuries is suppressed. It's been a very interesting evolution of participation in the auctions for U.S. treasuries over the course of the last 24 months. What we have seen is a shift in the marginal buyer of last resort. Historically, treasury auctions have brought in a variety of different buyers, whether they're domestic real money players, foreign central banks, or overseas hedge funds. What we have seen is that overseas sponsorship for treasuries has waned in 2023, and the Treasury Department has found the marginal buyer of last resort in the form of sophisticated domestic money managers and hedge funds. And as we have seen, this is the most 
price-sensitive group of buyers, which explains to some extent why we did see the return of positive term premium, at least for a moment. Moving on to number eight, that the labor market softening accelerates, will also add number seven, demographics keep the supply of labor contained. While the FOMC can take solace in what's been a gradual easing of labor market conditions over the course of the cycle, one of the biggest threats to the committee's ability to keep rates in restrictive territory in 2024 is if the unemployment rate accelerates exponentially. We've talked a lot about how a more than 0.3 percentage point increase in the unemployment rate off the cycle low commonly precedes a larger surge in joblessness, with the unemployment rate dropping down to 3.7% in November from 3.9%, and once again only 0.3 percentage points off the cycle low, investors have been left with little incremental evidence that their ability to keep rates restrictive well into the year ahead will be materially challenged by the trajectory of the labor market. And on the demographic side, I do think it is interesting to note that As a market, we've come to accept the fact that the relationship between the workforce and employers changed during the pandemic. The rise of work from home, the scarcity of labor, particularly for those frontline service sector jobs, really came to define 2021 and 2022. But as we move into the next stage of the cycle and higher real borrowing costs continue to work through the system, we anticipate that as we saw in the November payrolls report, the labor force participation rate will continue to edge higher. Now, the risk is that that doesn't happen simply from a demographics perspective, and we don't have the incremental workers available for those frontline service sector jobs, or frankly, throughout the system as a whole. And since the pandemic, a component of this argument has been that a lot of older workers simply brought forward retirement, and if they were going to retire at some point in the next few years anyway, either being furloughed, laid off, or simply relocating to a work-from-home location where they were going to spend retirement, the decision was made that they didn't need to re-enter the workforce. And while that dynamic has certainly played out, the research from the Fed also highlights that the pandemic happened to strike at a time when a lot of baby boomers were going to be retiring anyway. So while the timing may have pulled baby boomer retirement forward a year or 18 months, this was always going to happen. And aging demographics in the U.S. is something that the economy is going to have to cope with over the longer term. But for the time being, labor force participation continues to creep higher and entrenched wage gains have thus far been able to be avoided, but nonetheless a risk to keep in mind. And Ben, if you're worried about retirement, don't. It's not for you. Risk number six is geopolitics, and number five is the U.S. election. Obviously, 2022 and 2023 have seen very significant geopolitical events. First, it was Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and then more recently, obviously, the attacks in Israel portended a wider conflict in the Middle East that's ongoing and seems to have no near-term resolution in sight. Add to this that, generally speaking, the trend of deglobalization, a more isolationist slant in governments around the world, seems to be the theme. Inflation is high around the world. Interest rates are high in pretty much every developed market. And it's an environment where a geopolitical event, whatever that may be, holds the potential to trigger a significant financial markets rethink. Now, from purely an economic perspective... Disruptions in the flow of goods and services is an inflationary risk, as we saw was the case when war broke out in Ukraine. 
And so, as it relates to treasuries, along with the potential for a traditional flight-to-quality impulse, is also the economic fallout resulting from distortions in commerce at any place around the world. And as far as the U.S. elections go, setting aside the potential candidates for the time being, we anticipate that given the recency of the 2016 episode, that the market will trade off of the underlying assumption that if we end up with a strong GOP showing, that that will be bond bearish, good for the equity market, and inflationary. Translating that through to price action, as polling results come in over the course of the year, we would expect an incremental bond bearish impulse, but not one significant enough to overshadow the broader macro environment and the fact that the Fed is more likely than not going to be in a rate-cutting mode by the end of the year. Number four, timing the global central banking pivot. As we noted earlier, we don't expect the first Fed cut until the second half of next year. But that certainly doesn't mean that we can't see the ECB, for example, jump into action on the cutting side long before the Fed needs to do so. On the flip side, the Bank of Japan is widely considered to be biased to hike rates as opposed to cut rates in the year ahead, and that will contribute, at least on the margin, to the attractiveness of U.S. treasuries for Japanese investors who intend to hedge returns back into local currency. And we've talked about it before several times over the course of this past year, but obviously there's different economic drivers that different central banks need to consider in crafting monetary policy for their own respective regions. The mortgage market in Canada and the UK come to mind given the fact that housing is far more interest rate sensitive there than it is in the US. You also have different energy considerations in Europe than one would in Canada or Japan. Commodities play a different role in the Australian economy, for example. And so... As we look out at the shape of various curves in different markets around the world, the opportunities that exist and risks that present themselves come in the form of interpreting different labor market dynamics and some other driving factors of inflation and growth. But as we've seen over the course of 2023, even if external developments don't matter quite as much for treasuries as they used to, timing the dovish pivot from central banks around the world is instrumental in determining when it will be that yield curves broadly transition into bull steepening mode as the other side of the global economic cycle takes clearer shape. Risk number three, sticky inflation puts Fed hikes back on the table. To help frame the committee's willingness to keep rates in restrictive territory with inflation still running well above the 2% target, we'll offer a reminder that no prior FOMC has lost the central bank's credibility as an inflation fighter. And given inflation status as public enemy number one, while we're operating under the assumption that the further expression of Fed hawkishness will come in the form of an extended period on hold, that doesn't mean that a reacceleration of core CPI to 0 0.4, 0 0.5, 0.6% month over month couldn't put further hikes back on the table. 2023 saw a modest decrease in Shelter's contribution to headline inflation, although it remains elevated in a pre-pandemic context. Stalling real estate activity, low inventory, lofty borrowing costs have served to keep home prices elevated, though a further cooling of the labor market and a continued moderation in wage gains will reinforce our conviction that home prices will move lower over time. 
It's also key to put this in the context of core services X shelter. So while the aggregate core figures might be biased lower, there is still the potential for wage growth to drive that super core calculation that Powell has referenced a number of times. So to conclude that the Fed has definitively won the battle with inflation is a bit premature, at least at this stage. Risk number two, funding market ceases to be fun. And while we always try to keep the fun in funding, the one non-economic dynamic that could flare up earlier in the year ahead to force a sooner Fed pivot would be market dysfunction, and particularly market dysfunction in the very front end of the curve. Now that we've seen balances at the RRP continue to decline, funding rates such as SOFR begin to pick up on calendar dates, as used to be the case, and bank reserves, while not anywhere near what would be considered scarce, come under a degree of pressure with everything that means for the potential for more upward pressure on yields in the money market, which is the one thing that could get the Fed to stop QT and more realistically entertain the idea of a sooner rate cut. Now, as it presently stands, the Fed seems nothing if not committed to continuing to run down the balance sheet, but $60 billion a month in treasuries continuing to run out of SOMA represents liquidity removal in an environment when bill issuance is also going to remain high in an outright context and also as a share of overall debt outstanding. And what this means is that the cushion of reserves that are going to be transitioning from abundant to ample and the fact that we've already started to see signs of SOFR ticking higher on December 1st, for example, means that as an outlier consideration, if we see any undue volatility in the very front end of the market, the Fed would take notice and likely be quick to react. Now, that could come in the form of more favorable terms at the standing repo facility or another non-monetary policy tool that might be rolled out similar to the bank term funding program to address the issue. But in any case, we're comfortable with the assertion that the funding market is not going to remain as well behaved as it has been over the course of the last two years into 2024. And risk number one, the return of term premium. It'll be back. A resilient labor market, growth optimism, persistent inflation, ballooning debt issuance, and jitters around the likelihood of a higher R-star in the post-pandemic era combined to drive the brief and eventful return of positive term premium in the fall of 2023. The unique aspect of this reintroduction of positive term premium was that it came in bear steepening fashion near the end of a hiking cycle. It's interesting that in hindsight, we can actually say that the Fed had reached terminal at the point that positive term premium came back onto the market's radar. Now, to a large extent, that was simply a function of the fact that a no-landing narrative combined with pretty daunting Treasury Department borrowing requirements left the market in a unique position to effectively demand greater compensation to go further out the curve. The reintroduction of term premium in the coming quarters will occur in a more traditional fashion, which will be a bull steepening of the curve, which carries with it the risk that over the course of the next several years, the Fed will ultimately need to err on the side of higher monetary policy rates than the forward path of pricing suggests at the moment. And on the topic of lists, coal, coal, I got a rock. That's coal, Vale. In the week ahead, the Treasury market will have a great deal on the fundamental side with which to contend. But before then, Monday, December 11th, sees a doubleheader in terms of coupon auction with $50 billion in three-year notes auctioned at 11.30 a.m., 
followed by a 1 p.m. auction of 37 billion tens. And then on Tuesday afternoon, we see the 21 billion 30-year auction. Now, the truncated auction schedule is a function of the fact that settlement on the 15th occurs on Friday and the Fed meeting is on Wednesday. Are expectations for monetary policymakers to deliver anything outside of a Santa pause are relatively low. We think the Fed has a high likelihood of keeping rates unchanged, which will make the combination of the statement, the press conference, and of course, the updated projections all the more potentially market moving. We anticipate the theme of a hawkish pause to be the biggest takeaway. We're at the stage where the Fed wants to keep flexibility to delay rate cuts as long as possible, and one of the most effective ways to do this will be to signal to investors that a rate hike might actually be on the table sometime early next year, even if we ultimately don't believe one comes to fruition. We'll also see an update on the inflation projections front, which, given the Q3 quarterly annualized pace of inflation at 2.3%, i.e. core PCE within the GDP print, we'd, all else being equal, be biased for some downward revisions on the inflation side. The unemployment rate at 4.1, we had been viewing as subject to revision, but the reality is that we have such a strong departure point via the November payrolls report at 3.7 that the Fed is likely to have far less urgency to change the unemployment rate estimate. What will be perhaps the most market-moving aspect of the SCP will be the beloved dot plot. 2023 will be revised lower to 5.3, and then the question becomes whether or not the Fed keeps 2024 unchanged, which would be effectively signaling only a 25 basis point rate reduction next year, or if they choose to drop it by a quarter point. We think that ultimately the Fed errs on the side of continuity in keeping the 50 basis points worth of forward rate cuts as the departure point for the year ahead. We also have Tuesday's release of core CPI. Expectations there are for a three-tenths of a percent increase. And let us not forget the November retail sales numbers on Thursday. In the wake of a universally strong jobs report, we expect that the Yield lows for the very near term have been established, and a period of consolidation after the takedown of the auctions, the information offered in CPI, and of course, the Fed's take on it all, that the market will spend the last couple of weeks of the year training in a relatively tight and hopefully uneventful range. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And with holiday parties and calorie consumption on the rise, we'd like to pause to give a special thanks to Stephen Perry, the inventor of Elastic. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative.
The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. For full legal disclosure, visit bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.